to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This morning, we're going to, as we kick off our prayer initiative and been thinking about prayer a lot lately, I want to look at a message entitled, How to Pray for Other Christians. How to Pray for Other Christians. And we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. I'm going to read you the entire section here of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 through verse 23. We read in verse 15, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When we think about how many different needs of prayer there are. There, there really are so many. Uh, you think about praying for the lost. You think about praying for our world, our country, our government. You think about just your individual prayer needs and all the different requests that you bring to God. But then you think about how to pray for other Christians. And as we look at this text in Ephesians chapter 1, I think we will all agree at the end that one highlight this passage gives us is really focuses our ultimate need, our main need. What is the biggest need of our lives? And we see it here. This morning, we're going to look at five lessons we learn as we pray for other Christians. Five lessons we learn as we pray for other Christians. The first one we're going to focus on is when praying for other Christians, remember our God is triune. When praying for other Christians, remember our God is triune. And this is significant because what you read when you look at Ephesians chapter 1 is you read language that is Trinitarian. And sometimes this is maybe from a lack of understanding or a lack of knowledge or a lack of teaching we lose sight of this, and it's something that we have to, to gain. Paul prays with a knowledge of a triune God, and we see it. We see it's important to get a definition of the Trinity. And there's so many good definitions of the Trinity, but I think one that I really like that James White provides is that within the one being that is God, there exist eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
When we look at that definition and we read that, it's, it's the idea that there's three affirmations here. First of all, there's only one God. There is only one God. But second of all, he eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The third affirmation is that each of these persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are co-equal and co-eternal. When you look at this text, you begin to see references to the Spirit. In verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, you see God the Son, your love towards all the saints. You continue down into verse 17, he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. We see God the Father here brought out. We get into verse 18 having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Reading in verse 17, we see the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. And many believe this is pertaining to the Holy Spirit in verse 17. You get the idea, but over and over in his prayer, he is speaking in reference not just to the Father, but to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And it's important that we understand how God has revealed himself. If we want to know how to pray, we have to go to God's word where he's given us knowledge of who he is. I've heard over the years, sometimes people will say, I'm not a person of the word, I'm a praying person. I'm a prayer warrior. When someone says that to me, I don't really take a lot of credence with that because you can't understand the language and the knowledge of how to approach God apart from how he's revealed himself. If you want to be sure that somebody's going to approach God in an unbiblical way, it's going to be a person that prays and doesn't read the word of God. The word of God gives us knowledge as to who God is. And he's a triune God. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. And, and when we look at this, we are reminded of, of so many things. Ephesians chapter 1, we see in verses 4 through verse 14, really verse 3 through verse 14, we see that the Trinity is mentioned over and over and over. The, the, the Father plans our salvation. We see in verses 3 through 14 that the Son purchases our salvation. We see even in this section that the Spirit preserves our salvation. It really is exciting because over and over we see this. And, and throughout church history, this has been an affirmation of the Christian faith. If you want to know the uniqueness of the Christian faith, look no further than the fact that our God is triune. We read in the creed, the creeds of history past, I'll read a portion from the Athanasian Creed. And the Athanasian Creed may sound like a really old thing to read, but I want you to see that a triune God is how he's revealed himself and how historically Christians have worshiped him, how they've prayed. It says, this is the true Christian faith, that we worship one God in three persons and one God without confusing the persons or dividing the divine substance. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Holy Spirit is still another. 
that there is one Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, equal in glory and co-equal in majesty. What the Father is, that is the Son, and that is the Holy Spirit. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is unlimited. The Son is unlimited. The Holy Spirit is unlimited. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. Yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal, just as there are not three who are uncreated and who are unlimited, but there is one who is uncreated and unlimited. And I read that to you because I want you to think when we learn how to pray, as we learn how to pray, and it's a process of all of our lives, we learn that we pray to a God who is triune, and we begin to understand and are informed as to how God reveals himself. We don't pray to the Father and refer to the Father as the Father dying on the cross for our sins, or we don't refer to the Son as sealing us we don't refer to the Spirit as the one who became the God-man, but we learn a knowledge of who God is and how he has revealed himself. So the first lesson as we pray for other Christians is we remember our God is triune. But the second lesson that I want us to look at this morning is when praying for other Christians, we not only remember our God is triune, but we need to express thankfulness to express thankfulness. And this is significant because it really becomes a pattern of how Paul prays throughout his life in ministry. He says it in verse 15, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. When we pray for one another, a biblical pattern as to how to pray is not only approaching God as triune and understanding how he's revealed himself, but it's also thanking God for what he's done for you, what he's done for me, what he's done for other believers. I love this because this really is a pattern of gratefulness and of gratitude in the life of Paul. We see it. I'm going to look at some passages with you here. You see it at the Church of Rome. Paul in Rome says, first, I thank my God, through Jesus Christ, for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. You see it even at Corinth. And I say even at Corinth because Corinth was an unhealthy church in 1 Corinthians. And yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. He does it at Philippi, at the opening there. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. It gets exciting because he goes to Colossae. And what does he say? We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we give thanks to God always. For all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, over and over and over, he mentions thankfulness in his life and in his prayers. But look at the basis of his thankfulness. He's thankful for their faith and for their love. When we look at the faith and the love that we see here, we see that faith and love are spiritual DNA markers of the Christian. I pray we would see this. If you don't have faith and you don't have love and you don't have hope, one thing that you begin to understand is you may be many things, but you're not Christian. 
Because the Holy Spirit marks this in the lives of his people. So when a person comes to a local body and says, hey, I want to be associated with Riverside Community Church or First Baptist Church Scottsboro or you name a church in Scottsboro, and they come up immediately, the concern is, one, do they have faith in Christ? Are they legitimately a Christian? But another factor of this is, is their love? Is there a marker of their life that they know Jesus Christ? He's thankful for that. These are markers that, you know, one question as we think about how we are to pray for other people is to consider, are you known by your faith and by your love today? And, and it's interesting because I really believe the old adage that if faith and love are not present within our lives currently, it's only because of two realities. One, you're either spiritually sick or two, you're spiritually dead. And see, this morning, when we think about faith and we think about love, we think about that which reflects and flows out of a life that is in fellowship with God, a life that's walking and abiding in Christ. And Paul is thankful for this. He's thankful for their faith. He's thankful for their love. He's thankful for what God is doing in them. He's thankful for how God has been working within them. And, and this is how we are to pray for others. I remember years ago, my dad reminded me, he said, you know, how in the world can love believe all things, hope all things, endure all things? And he was speaking about 1 Corinthians, and he was saying, you know, we don't trust other people, we trust Christ in them. When we pray for each other, we're reminded of our frailties, but we're reminded of the anchor of our lives. We're reminded that any good that comes from us comes from God. We're thankful. We express thanks. So as we pray for one another, let's express thankfulness that reflects this type of attitude. But the third lesson that we see that Paul brings up, when praying for other Christians, not only remember our God is triune, not only express thankfulness, but third, don't forget the main thing. Don't forget the main thing. It's interesting because there's so many different needs we can pray for when we pray for other people. If you think about it, I mean, the, the list is endless. There's a lot of different needs. We've probably seen this before. Uh, if you've ever been to a prayer meeting where there was a list of needs for people, you've been to one of those and, and there's a list of needs. And I'll, I'll tell you in my experience in ministry, very seldom at those prayer meetings, does the list get from the temporal to the spiritual? Many times it deals with the temporary and not the spiritual need. And, and I think this is something we can learn because we see not only are all needs significant and important to God, but it's, it's important that we recognize the priority of need. There's four major prayers that Paul prays in the New Testament. One is found in the passage we're looking at this morning. Another one is found in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, to the end of the chapter. You can see a third prayer that's common is Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. Another prayer is Colossians 1, 9 through 11. And what you find in all of these prayers, and in fact, if we were to list out every prayer of the Apostle Paul, one fascinating observation I think we would discover is that he never prays 
for other people's circumstances to change. Not one time in his prayers. And and when we look at that, I'm immediately comforted, though, because I know that when Paul prays and cries out to God, he prays that his thorn of flesh would be removed from him. We don't know what that was. Many people speculate it was physical. We don't know for certain, but we do know that it was a temporary type situation. And we also know that the Apostle John, he he sends greetings and and wishes for their health. And, And we see... Jesus in the Lord's Supper speak about temporal needs when he goes from our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he says something fascinating. He turns it into give us this day our daily bread. It it was a passage that caused the early church to marvel. And if you look at the early church and the church fathers, Many of them do not believe that this is a request for daily bread, but they spiritualize it to mean the Eucharist or to mean the Lord's Supper because they could not marvel that the Father who is in heaven, whose name is hallowed, whose kingdom will come, whose will is to be done on earth as it is in heaven, could be so quickly interested in our daily needs. But many commentators and many church scholars over the centuries have realized, no, the church fathers missed this one. He's not speaking about the Eucharist. He's not speaking about the Lord's Supper here. He's saying that God is concerned about my daily bread. So when we come to God, it's not that we neglect the temporal. It's not that we neglect the present needs of our life and not the obvious, the sickness, the financial The familial concerns, those are precious to the heart of God. But please hear me out. If we don't understand the main thing, we will miss the priority of how we're to pray. There's a priority here. Often when people say they're praying for you, they are not speaking of this priority. Often when you hear on social media, I'll be praying for that. It's not this. And it's important as Christians that we see this. So when we look at this, we see, not fourthly, not only when we pray for other Christians, remember our God is triune. Second of all, when praying for other Christians, express thankfulness. Third, don't forget the main thing. But fourth of all, pray for understanding. And I want you to see this here. What he does is he gives several different terms that point to the reality of the great need that we have as Christians to understand what we have and who we are in Christ. You see, in chapter one, verse three, if you glance back, he says, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. In verses three through 14, if you wanna do something this afternoon that's fruitful and profitable to this study, is just list out all the blessings that you find in those verses. And you'll list one after the other after the other. And I want to ask you a question. Do you ever find as Christians that you are not living out of the resources that you have in Jesus Christ? Can you relate with me? You see, Paul had a passion in his life when he prayed, and he prayed that believers would be awakened to the reality, that their hearts would be enlightened to the wonder of what they had in Christ. There's a danger that is something common to all of us, where we can be around the church, we can hear sermons, 
We can hear about blessings, but yet not walk in experience of those very blessings. I've told you before about, I think the lady's name was Hetty Green. Hetty was a woman that lived with her adult son. Her adult son came close to dying of malnutrition. She took him into the doctor, and and she was very frugal, and she basically did everything she could to save money. Everyone knew her for her frugal nature. Well, one of the fascinating parts of the story is that when she dies, they discover her estate is worth millions. And we look at that and we say, what in the world? What's going on here? Why would a woman who's worth millions live as if she had nothing? And that's exactly the nature of what Paul is praying. Paul is praying that Christians would understand the reality of their resources in Jesus Christ. He felt like the greatest need that the Christian had in their walk with Jesus Christ was to live out of a recognition and an understanding, having eyes enlightened to see this. And he uses several different terms. He says a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And people wonder whether or not that's little s, a spirit like I want you to have a spirit of wisdom, little s, it's in you, but it's, or is he speaking of the Holy Spirit who gives wisdom and revelation? Either way you go here, both roads point to the same direction. If you're going to have a little spirit of wisdom and power, the Holy Spirit has to give that to you. And, and I think he very likely may be speaking of the, the Holy Spirit here because I've gone back and forth over the years, but typically every time you see our need of wisdom, revelation, understanding, enlightenment, comprehension, the Holy Spirit is always involved. The Holy Spirit enlightens us. He says, I pray that you would have the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom. Wisdom is it's, it's insight. It's deep understanding. It's the idea of practical application. There's some people that know a lot about the Bible, but they don't know how to live the Christian life and tie their shoes. You can know a lot of theology, but if you don't know how to use the scripture in real time, that's sad, isn't it? What do you need? You need wisdom. You need the gospel and shoe leather, right? Working it out, walking it out. How do you live as a Christian at junior high? How do you live as a Christian in a, in a, on a basketball team? How do you live as a Christian in a workplace? How do you, you see, we need wisdom to be able to navigate the, the incredibly difficult cultural issues. How do I take the word of God and live out of it prudently, regardless of the time period? We ought to be comforted by this because the challenges the reformers had in the 16 and 1700s are far different than the ones we have, but nonetheless, they were challenges. The challenges that any person has at any given time in history is something unique to their time period. But God is the one who gives wisdom. We need wisdom. We need wisdom to live as Christians. Wisdom and revelation. The word revelation is a spirit which can fathom and unfold the deep things of God, that we could understand what God is revealing in his word. Then he uses that word knowledge we saw over and over again when we went through the book of 2 Peter. The word knowledge is more than just information, it's, it's an experiential knowledge. It's a knowledge that lays claim to personal involvement. 
This is uh, not, do you know about God? This is, do you know God? Not, do you know about the books of the Bible? Not, do you know about the miracles of Christ? Not, do you know about Pauline theology? But do you know Jesus Christ in day-to-day living? Are you walking with him? Are you growing in him? And Paul is praying here. And then he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. It means enlightened, shine, light upon, illuminated. When praying for other Christians, we pray that they would have understanding. And this is what it leads us to this morning. Fifthly, when praying for other Christians, not only remember our God is triune, not only express thankfulness. Thirdly, don't forget the main thing. Fourthly, pray for understanding. But fifthly, pray they would get it. They would get it. You're thinking, what does get it mean? How do you get it? Pray that they would understand what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. I'm going to start with something that I did at the end last hour, but I want you to see this right from the bat. It, Jonathan Edwards expresses this really well in his sermon, A Divine and Supernatural Light. And in his sermon, he illustrates this with the idea of honey. You can know it, he says, with the rational mind, and you also can know it with the sensing tongue. You can know that honey is sweet because people tell you about it, and you believe them. But when you actually taste the sweetness of honey yourself, you know fully, mentally, as well as experientially. When you move from just mentally knowing about the sweetness of honey to directly tasting it, you may say something like this. I knew it was sweet, but I really didn't realize what that meant. I knew, but I didn't know. Edwards concludes that in the same way, there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and graciousness on the heart. Paul is saying, I pray that you would get it, that that you would experience this. And he's going to focus on three specific areas here, three areas the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you would be illuminated to see the reality of three different truths, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and then he says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Let's let's start from the, the first point here, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. When you pray for other Christians, bring their needs to God that they have in sickness and finance and family. Those are precious to the heart of God, but don't neglect the main priority. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you living a hope-filled life or are you hopeless right now? Are you hopeless? I've been fighting hopelessness over the last year. Ever just feel like you're hopeless and you, you just look at the state of America? Hopeless. Look where things are. Look where they're going. Look at what's happening. 
You, you see, do you understand? We get a glimpse immediately why we need to be prayed for, that we might live knowing the hope to which he has called us. Today, I could come before you and say, hey, would you pray for me? Uh, I've got this bill. I've got this backache. I've got this going on. I've got this with the kids. Ann's got this going on. We need this. My mom's having this happen. Would you pray for her here? Would you pray this here? But do you understand something? If God, by his grace, awakened me to the hope that which he's called me with, it changes my perspective in every one of those areas I just mentioned to you. You see, sometimes we focus so much on the temporal to the exception to the complete loss of the other. I love what Warren Wiersbe says here. He says, the hope to which he has called you. He says, you know, this is a call by his grace. We're called with a holy calling, 2 Timothy 1. We're called from darkness into light, 1 Peter 2. Called to glory, 1 Peter 5. He wants us to understand the hope that is ours. He says, because of this calling, some callings offer no hope, but the calling we have in Christ assures us of a delightful future. Delightful future. Assurance for the future. The believer's hope is, of course, the return of Jesus Christ for his church. We have a future filled with hope. Have you lost sight of the hope of his calling? What that means? I was thinking about in the Bible, in Titus chapter 2, it's a blessed hope. In Romans chapter 15, it's an abounding hope. In Romans 15, yet again, it's a hope that brings joy and peace. It, it's, it's possible to have been called this morning, if you're in Christ Jesus, you've been called by the grace of God. But it's possible that even though you've been called by the grace of God, you're not living out of the hope of that very calling. And Paul is praying for Christians that they would be awakened, that they would have eyes to understand the implications of this hope. When we feel hopeless, we can be guaranteed that we've put our hope in the wrong things. When you put your hope, and when I put my hope in the things of the world, it leads to confusion. The world never delivers. The world never brings out what I'm hoping it's going to give me. But what we see in Christ Jesus, there's hope. And Paul is praying that they would experience hope. He's writing these epistles, and so many of them, he's in prison. You say, wait a minute. Wouldn't he be praying for other Christians that they would be praying for him to get out of jail? You don't have to be praying desperately as the priority of your life getting out of jail when you live out of the hope of the calling that you've been called with. There's a difference. All of a sudden, when Christ is our life, he becomes our hope. He becomes our attitude. He changes our priorities. He changes everything. But second of all, it's not just the hope of his calling. He says the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is exciting because in the Bible, when we think about the inheritance of the Christian, we could spend a lot of time and we could go to the Apostle Peter where he speaks about an inheritance which is undefiled and reserved in heaven for us. And what an inheritance that is. It's one thing to get an inheritance. It's another thing to get an inheritance that assures us that because of union with Jesus Christ, I have access to every spiritual blessing because of Christ. But I don't think that's what he's saying here. 
Notice what he says. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? There's a difference. Again, going to Wearsby, Paul prays that our eyes will be opened as to the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What he wants us to see is that we are God's riches. We are his possession. F.F. Bruce on this passage says, Paul prays here that his readers will appreciate the value which God places on them, his plan to accomplish his eternal purpose through them, as the first fruits of the reconciled universe of the future in order that their lives may be in keeping with the high calling and that they may accept in grateful humility the grace and glory thus lavished on them. This is phenomenal. This is a, it's not just an awareness of the hope that we have. If you live with hope, you are different in the present. When you have hope, things change. When you have hope, you see America different than you did yesterday when you were hopeless. When you live out of the hope of your calling, you live out of the realities of who you are and what you have in Christ and what is awaiting you in the future. And it changes your look. It changes your kingdom. It changes your perspective. It changes your allegiances. It changes your focus. But here, this assurance of God's purpose and by his grace to use the church that we are his treasure, it changes everything. I remember so many years of my early Christian life, I, I struggled with just walking in the reality that God loved me. I knew the Bible and I knew the gospel and I believed in the gospel, but I found so many times through failure in my life and through sins that I struggled with just walking in the reality that God loved me. But what we need to see here is, is that God is desiring for us to see that we are his inheritance, that we are his possession, that God loves us, that God has an eternal purpose through us in Christ Jesus. It changes the way we view our Christian life. It changes the way we approach God. It's similar to what he says in another prayer in Ephesians chapter three. And again, praying to the same church, he says he prayed that they would have comprehension, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How many people can quote Bible verses about the love of God, but how many people walk in the reality and the experience of recognizing they are God's treasure. They are his possession. And Paul says, I pray that not only would you live out of a hope of your calling, but I pray that you would come to understand this inheritance and his inheritance and what it means. The final one is ever bit as good as the first two. And he says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. And then he goes on in verse 20 and he speaks about the might in which he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. He wants Christians to be awakened 
to who they are in Christ. We can all relate, but I've learned over the years, a lot of Christians, they feel defeated. They feel hopeless. They lack assurance of the love of God, and they live as if they're powerless. And often it's the very people that if you say, hey, God calls you to love your wife. God calls you to honor your parents. They'll look at you and say, but I'm not Jesus. And they know nothing about the reality and the miracle and the identity of the Christian. And the sad thing is, is that we live just in America. There there are many people just as in any nation where the gospel has been taught and receive their people that are nominal that will be around you that will say the things of the gospel but not understand it at all. And many people that talk about Christianity have no concept what Christianity is. And Paul says, I pray that you would understand. You remember in Colossians when Paul says the mystery of the gospel is Christ in you, the hope of glory? And remember in Galatians when he says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And what, what he speaks of here is the Christian has access to the resources of Christ and his power for day to day Christian living, power to put others before ourselves, power to live as servants in front of others, power to to follow the commands of God. I love how Wearsby put this. He says, the power of the Holy Spirit through the resurrected, ascended Christ is available to all Christians by faith. His power to us who believe. It is grace that supplies the wealth, but it is faith that lays hold of the wealth. We learn here, even in this passage and in this prayer, the power available to us who believe And that phrase believe is literally in the present tense. He speaks here that the Christians would come to be aware of their hope. They'd become aware of the love of God. They'd become aware of his power and the faith that they're called to appropriate this in their life. This is a game changer. If there's power available in Jesus Christ and if Christians come alive to that, There's power to live content. There's power to live filled with hope. There's power to to live with love. There's power to live with the controlled mind. There's power to live out the commands of the gospel in the epistles. Over and over and over. So this morning, what would happen in your life if the main thing, was addressed? How would it change the temporal things? How would it change your fears? How would it affect your goals and your dreams? How would it affect your longings? How would it affect the lives of fellow believers? How would it affect your day-to-day walk with Christ if you lived out of an enlightened heart where you lived out of the reality of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ? You see, I think what happens as we begin to explore this, we begin to go, wow, I got a chance to pray for my kids. Man, yeah, do I want them to make it to college? I hope. (laughs) Do I want them to get out of college? Yes. Do I want them to have a job? Yes. But I pray that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened to know the hope of his calling. 
Because if that was realized, you can take anything else you want, but that's going to guide them through. You give them an understanding of the love of God. You give them an understanding of the power of Christ in them. You can give them all the awards of this earth. You can give them all the things, but none of it touched those realities. And in their darkest pain and in their darkest hour, what will get them through? The reality of Christ, the reality of his presence, the reality of who they are and what they have in Jesus. What are we praying for people? What's the priority of our prayers? We don't neglect them in their pain. We lift up those needs, but we pray within the greatest needs of their life that they come to know Christ like never before. I was thinking, wow, as I was looking at this, I was like, wow, you know, I was thinking, this, this is my greatest need. And, and I think sometimes it, it really does. It, it takes one to know one. I know the struggle of being confused in need prior, priorities. And sometimes the needs that I prioritize are really not the greatest need. So as we go into this prayer initiative, as we pray for missionaries, as we pray, you know, it's interesting because even as we pray for the lost, we're praying that this would be realized, aren't we? We're praying that they would come to know these glories of the gospel. But I want you to think with me, how does it change the way you pray for your kids, the way you pray for your parents, the way you pray for your church? Let's pray in a way that honors God. Remember our God is triune. Express thankfulness. Don't forget the main thing. Pray for understanding. Pray that they would get it. Would you bow your head with me? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that we find truth as to how to live. And Lord, we learn so much from your servant, Paul, as you guided him, even as he writes this prayer. Lord, I pray that our prayers would reflect a biblical model of praying. Oh God, please be with us as we live in the already aspects of the Christian life, but the not yet that are to come in the future. And Lord, we, I pray God that we would pray for people where they are, lifting up their needs and their circumstances. But oh God, thank you for showing us here what the greatest priority is. I pray we would see how this impacts all of life. Lord, help us to see this, trust it, believe it, know it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd stand with me.